0: The best way to begin a story about a cookbook is with a recipe.
1: To make a good white milk gravy, you got to have a good eye for measurements. So after you fry your chicken or steak, look at the drippings and try to decide how much flour and milk you need to thicken it up without getting too much. If you just fried a good-sized chicken or several pieces of steak, you've got a fair amount of drippings in the skillet. You'll probably use two tablespoons of flour and about a quarter cup of milk. So just mix it all in there till there are no more lumps, and then add it to the drippings and stir it over a flame until it gets thick. And if you get it too thick, you just water it down some, and if it's too thin, add some more flour, and just keep in mind to yourself, it takes years of practice. Nobody gets it right to start off. That's how your grandmother teaches you to make gravy.
0: You're listening to Gravy,
1: Gravy, Gravy, Gravy,
0: Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Sarah Reynolds. Ashley Day was 15 years old when Ernest Matthew Meichler's White Trash Cooking Cookbook was published in 1986, but she never heard of it. At the time, she was living in southern Alabama, still in high school, eating those so-called white trash foods at home, but not interested in cooking them. When she turned 19, she left Alabama, left home. There'd been some tragedy and heartache in her life. She was disillusioned with her family and the conservative environment she'd grown up in. So she moved first to Atlanta and then to New York City. She became a writer and a consultant for the tech industry. She was gone for years.
1: I think like a lot of people, you don't really start to look at your home place with clear eyes until you're away from it.
0: And then eventually, with some sense of clarity and yearning, She returned later in her 20s to help raise her brother and to reconnect with her family. Not until then, 15 years after Michler's cookbook was published, does Ashley remember reading about it somewhere, and it struck a chord.
1: I grew up in a poor-to-working-class family in South Alabama on the Gulf Coast. My people come from southeastern Mississippi, and they were sawmill workers and dirt farmers— and mechanics and those recipes are this interesting combination of the kind of food that you grow and put up yourself and also recipes that make use of really inexpensive processed food ingredients like spaghetti or, um, you know, cream of mushroom soup.
0: So she started to cook these recipes from her childhood. Cantuna casseroles, peas and cornbread... Liver and Onions with Rice. Ernie Meichler's book helped her reconnect with the South, her home, and the family she'd left behind.
1: I remember laughing as I read it. I remember looking at the photographs and realizing that a lot of the people and places could be, you know, members of my family. And the unpainted wooden Two room houses with swept dirt front yards could have been my great grandmother's. All of that was really familiar. Um, the tone of the writing was familiar. A lot of the recipes were things that I grew up with, and there was a a sense of being able to poke fun at yourself.
0: This food was a reminder of the sweeter parts of her childhood, a comfort she could share with her family without rehashing the pain of earlier years. It was a way for her to hold on to her identity as a rural Southerner.
1: And one of the ways that I was able to kind of go through that process of reclamation was through finding this cookbook and, you know, seeing myself and my people in its pages.
0: The people in the pages were the author's people, too. Ernie Meichler was born in Jacksonville, Florida in 1940 and raised in Palm Valley, a small seaside town in North Florida, just outside of Jacksonville. Growing up in the 1940s and 50s, Ernie dug in the sand for turtle eggs and hunted squirrels for dinner with his pal, Petey Pickett.
2: We grew up playing together and doing adventuresome things like worm paintings, where we would dip worms in paint and put them on a canvas and let them wiggle around. And of course, they stuck and dried out on the canvas, so that was unsuccessful. But we had other adventures. (laughs)
0: Helen PD Pickett and Ernie Meichler grew up together in Palm Valley, just down the road from a fish camp, near the drawbridge over the intercoastal waterway. Petey was born Helen, but ever since she proved herself a better shot than a man, no one ever called her Helen again.
2: One time, a friend of my father's brought over a pistol, and they were shooting the pistol at some cans my father put up on a fence in the backyard, and the man kept missing, and it, it was a high-standard target pistol and I was about seven and a half years old or eight maybe I was eight and so he gave me the pistol and I just went bam 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 and knocked every one of the cans off and well this man just drew himself up in a huff and took off with his brand new gun and went down to the fish camp and went out on the dock and threw his gun in the middle of the canal and said that any time a little girl could outshoot him with his own pistol, there was a factory defect and the gun was dangerous. And so I was Pistol Pete from then on.
0: <laughs> Petey remembers Ernie cooking from the very beginning. Every time she'd head across the street to his house, he was there at the counter, stirring and throwing ingredients in a pot.
2: Ernie Meichler learned cooking at his mama's knee. He would stand on a chair in the kitchen cooking with Aunt Ray. His mother's name was Edna Ray, but everybody in the little town of Palm Valley would call her Aunt Edna Ray, as we called all adults, aunt or uncle.
0: This rural North Florida upbringing, from the worm painting to the squirrel hunting to the fish camp down the road, was all the backdrop for what came to be white trash cooking, a collection of stories and recipes that Ernie began documenting, perhaps while he was still at home cooking with Edna Ray.
2: He worked on that book for years and years and years, and as he would travel around, um, he would carry he would carry it with him in a brown paper sack, like a grocery sack. His book, his book would be in there, just loose pieces of paper.
0: Ernie Meichler eventually left his small hometown of Palm Valley for college in Jacksonville, and then farther away to Oakland, California, for a Master's of Fine Arts at Mills College.
2: He was the kind of person that just electrified a room. If he he walked in, nobody paid any attention to anybody else.
0: He worked as a teacher, an artist, and also cooked to make a living. Dinner cruises, restaurant kitchens, private catering. All the while with tendrils of this white trash cooking idea in his head. The University of Florida has an archive of the Ernie Meichler papers. Fifteen boxes full of his notes, photographs, correspondence, and sketches. Among them, scribbled ideas about his mother on the back of an airplane vomit bag advertisements for dinner cruises with menus scrawled along the front in his big cursive hand, unfinished books and projects in the works. And he was probably talking to everyone along the way, says Petey Pickett, constantly collecting stories and recipes, recipes of the white rural poor and working class, recipes of home. Coming up, Margie's fried chicken, pineapple casserole, and a rejection from The New Yorker. And that's our donor music. Harry Simmons dug and stocked his first catfish pond in Yazoo City, Mississippi, in 1977. He opened Simmons Processing Plant in 1982. Today, Simmons' farm-raised catfish, which employs 250 people in the heart of the Mississippi Delta, grows fish on more than 5,000 acres of ponds, supplied by aquifers 100 feet below the rich alluvial soil. These days, Katie Simmons Prosser, a French Culinary Institute-trained chef, also Harry's daughter, leads the charge. The Simmons family grows and delivers the best-tasting and highest-quality U.S. farm-raised catfish in the world. Whether you're new to fried catfish or a catfish pâté connoisseur, you'll never find better fish than Simmons.
2: Hi! It's Melissa, and if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and tell them Gravy
0: Said Hey. And now back to our story. Let's pick up with another recipe. Here's Petey Pickett reading from Ernie's book.
2: Margie's Fried Chicken. Cut up a fryer, clean with lemon only. Dredge in a mixture of flour, salt, pepper, and allspice. Put in one-half inch of hot lard. Fry one side and then the other until well done. Eat directly out of the skillet. This is very good with a cold beer. If you're a strict Baptist, have a lemonade or a cold drink, and may God bless your home. (laughs)
3: You take a chicken and you kill it, and you put it in a skillet.
0: Bryce Walden, a composer from Mississippi, wrote six songs inspired by Ernie Meichler's book, one of them after Margie and her fried chicken. At Southern
3: cooking, and it's mighty
0: fine. The tradition of cooking is different from soul food, Meichler writes in the introduction to his book, but there's no denying that it's a kissing cousin. And white trash cooking isn't all Southern cooking either. It isn't all white Southern cooking, nor is it in opposition to Black Southern cooking. It's what Meichler defined as the cooking of his people, poor-to-working-class white rural Southerners, a demographic that was unrepresented in popular Southern cuisine at the time. Salt meat, cornmeal, and molasses are key ingredients, if Ernie had to name three. And the cooking is best done in cast iron. Keep your black iron skillet in a good, clean condition, he says, it is as special to those recipes as the walk to the Chinese cooking.
3: As she cut it up to fry it, Margie's fried chicken was the envy of the town.
0: More often, white trash is not associated with a cuisine, but with a people. And it's not a term that everyone is proud of. But Michler was. His book celebrated the poor rural southern folks who grew and preserved and pickled their food. And to these homegrown ingredients, they might add a can of tuna or a handful of chicken feet or a sleeve of Ritz crackers and call it dinner. Ernie Meichler was one of four brothers. His father, William Alfred Meichler, was a shrimper. His mother, Edna Ray Mills Meichler, ran a gas station and worked as a cook. She was known as a good fisherwoman.
2: I guess that's why we we never minded being called white trash, because we never uh, thought ourselves any less for that. I like the way Ernie defined it, and I I would uh, do it the same way he did, which is, if I could get to it here, never in my whole put-together life could I write down on a paper a hard-fast definition of white trash, because for us, as for our southern white trash cooking, there are no hard and fast rules. We don't like to be hemmed in. But the first thing you've got to understand is that there's white trash and there's white trash. Manners and pride separate the two.
0: But a book title with this name, White Trash Cooking, meant that Ernie had a hard time getting his idea published. After carrying around notes and recipes over the years, he crossed paths with a publisher named Jonathan Williams. Williams ran the Small Jargon Society Press, and he loved the idea of white trash cooking as a cookbook. He knew it would be controversial, and that's just how he liked it. He was a writer of the counterculture and called himself an Aristo-Dixie queer. Ernie was, too. He was writing the ways of a culture that was undermined and misunderstood. And Ernie was also gay. Williams' press was known for choosing artists who were pushing boundaries like Ernie. And most importantly, perhaps, he loved the title, something Ernie didn't want to give up.
2: He said he was not changing the name no matter what. If it stayed in that brown paper bag and ended up in the dumpster, he was not changing the name. He was absolutely adamant about it.
0: The 1980s were a time of reclamation. Identity politics were in full swing. The pains and successes of the civil rights movement were still echoing. The queer movement was afoot in the Bay Area and elsewhere. Ernie lived there for several years. The AIDS epidemic was rapidly moving through the community, and Ronald Reagan was president. So Jonathan Williams and Ernie Meichler were eager to stir up a ruckus. In one of his notes saved along the way, Ernie wrote, I want the book to be respectable, but not too respectable. White Trash Cooking was published in 1986.
4: So, you know, at the time this book was published, The New Yorker was, as it arguably still is now, the kind of um, barometer of literary culture in America.
0: John T. Edge is the director of the Southern Foodways Alliance.
4: So Jonathan Williams thought, okay, if I'm going to get press for this book, um, I'm going to use what little marketing dollars I have, and I'm going to take out an ad in The New Yorker. Um, And I think he he came up with like $900 and that that was what a small ad cost in the New Yorker So he mailed in his camera ready art and his check and it was returned the New Yorker basically said um, We thought the title might offend our readers and here's this gay kid from the sticks of Florida telling this really robust, complicated story about the place he claimed and the people who claimed him. And uh, it didn't sit well with those who had long ago adopted the stereotypes about the South that made them feel really comfortable. This book unsettled people.
0: While the northern literary establishment tiptoed, the book sold. A book that said white trash cooking across the top front in shameless, bold capital letters served as a validation for the rural white southern demographic.
4: I'm talking about the reclamation of Southern cuisine, and I'm also talking about the a reclamation of Southern stories, a kind of belief on the part of Southerners that their family stories were worthwhile and that our food was worthwhile and that this region was not merely benighted, but was tragic and flawed and on the mend.
0: The book was a collection of recipes and funny stories, yet within that, it told serious truths of people who didn't have much who shared what they had and were proud of what they were making. Take, for instance, Michael's recipe for a simple tomato sandwich.
2: That would be the kitchen sink tomato sandwich. In the peak of the tomato season, chill one very large or two medium tomatoes that have been vine ripened and have a good acidy bite to their taste. Take two slices of bread, coat them with a quarter inch of good mayonnaise, on one piece of bread, slice the tomato a quarter inch thick. Salt and pepper that layer. Add another layer of sliced tomato, and again, salt and pepper. Place the other piece of bread on top of this. Roll up your sleeves and commence to eat over the kitchen sink while the juice runs down your elbows. <laughs> now see, that, that anybody could make that.
0: White Trash Cooking was published in a time of calorie counting and Martha Stewart perfection, and Michler was saying that everyone can cook something out of this book, and everyone's going to make it differently, and that in fact may be the best part.
3: I mean, at the time in the 1980s, um, you know, Martha Stewart, with her, you know, kind of beautiful, absolutely poised, you know, sense of cooking and entertaining, was the was a dominant guide.
0: That's John Birdzall, a food and culture writer based in Oakland, California.
3: And so Michler's book was a kind of, you know, almost like a shocking, a shocking antidote to the, you know, to this kind of beautiful, expensive perfection that Martha Stewart expressed.
0: In contrast to Stewart, Michler chose to celebrate the simple everyday beauty and honesty of real food being cooked and eaten in some kitchens in the South.
4: What Jonathan Williams believed and Ernie Michler said by way of this book is that white trash was a badge worth reclaiming. It was a slur that when you pulled it close to your breast and, and celebrated the people who were known as white trash, that you changed it. You twisted it. You subverted the slur and made it a totem of identity and a positive totem of identity.
0: Ernie Meichler took his gay, southern, white trash identity with him to San Francisco, the epicenter of the queer movement, which had been growing for decades. The war years, like the gold rush years, drew a variety of people together in the Bay Area. Thousands of servicemen and women from all over the country came through San Francisco on their way to battlefronts in the Pacific. After the war, gay people continued to find their way back to San Francisco in search of a city that would tolerate them. And by 1980, an estimated 17% of the city's population was gay. Michler was part of this growing diaspora of gay people from all over the country, many from small towns.
3: You know, either they were, you know, overtly rejected by their families, or they felt like they just could never express themselves in the places where they were from. You know, in a sense, there was this joy um, about representing where you were from, but also this um, sense of deep sadness and kind of loss.
0: And sometimes it was food that brought these old homes and new homes together— It was a reminder of what they'd left behind and also brought some measure of comfort that they still were a person with an identity from that former place.
3: I remember at at some point during the 80s, a friend of a friend of mine from Davenport, Iowa, you know, once a year, his mom was this, you know, cute, sweet little lady from Davenport, Iowa, like this farm mom, would come and make her famous like fried chicken. And so he would have a dinner party and there'd be you know, all these gay men there (laughs) and his mom, you know, I don't, I don't even know if he was technically out to his mom, but of course she knew. And, you know, she had these like cast iron skillets going and she made this fried chicken with, uh, you know, like cream gravy and it was delicious. And it was, you know, it was very much San Francisco of its day where there would be, you know, guys who had left their hometowns or home regions for whatever reason still expressed Love for them, you know, still had this complicated relationship where they loved and missed the places where they were from, but they were happy to be part of this, you know, very urbane gay culture in San Francisco.
0: Ernie Meichler chose to honor his people and his place, flaws and all, and that resonated with readers in the South and around the U.S. Within six months of publishing White Trash Cooking, Jargon Society Press was so overwhelmed by the response, they sold the rights to Ten Speed Press, a San Francisco based publisher. It sold more than 200,000 copies in the first year alone, the year Ernie Meichler turned 46. And it was so popular over the years, 10 Speed released a 25th anniversary edition in 2011. This year, in 2016, the book turns 30 years old.
1: You basically just butter a casserole dish.
0: Ashley Day eventually left the South again, but this time with the Southern Foodways connection to home. Now she makes her pineapple casserole in Vermont.
1: And then you mix up, um, a half cup of flour and a half cup of sugar. Now, if you want to, you want to make it really uppity, you can mix in some whole wheat flour or some brown sugar. The important thing about this casserole is that you use pineapple tidbits. Don't use crushed pineapple and don't use chunks. Because you get the wrong combination of size and moisture.
0: Every year back in Alabama for Thanksgiving or Christmas, her family makes pineapple casserole. It's not a recipe from white trash cooking, but if Meichler had come across it, he might have put it in.
1: Another friend of mine would call it a redneck repast (laughs) because it's such a weird combination of ingredients. It doesn't sound like it would ever work. So you just make an even layer, roughly even layer of your pineapple tidbits. And then you take the flour and the sugar that you combined and you just kind of spread it over the top. And this is really just so it binds it it all together when it bakes up. Okay, so then you take about two cups of shredded cheddar cheese. So we've got pineapple tidbits, flour, sugar, shredded cheddar cheese, and then we're gonna put Ritz crackers on top. So you take your sleeve of Ritz crackers. A sleeve of Ritz crackers is an actual measurement in my house. It's not a cup, it's just a sleeve.
0: She brushes the final crumbs of the Ritz crackers on top of the casserole, and slices pats of butter on top.
1: And this is grass-fed Italian butter, which is hilarious. (laughs)
0: and then sticks it in the oven.
1: I think a lot of Americans have feet in multiple worlds. I don't know that white Americans realize it as often or as easily as people of color or immigrants or um, gay folks, for example. But I'm just as at home on my Aunt Susie's front porch in rural Alabama as I am walking through downtown Brooklyn, or hopefully one day hiking the mountains here.
0: While the casserole bakes, Ashley thumbs through her copy of White Trash Cooking. It's a spiral-bound book reminiscent of Southern neighborhood and church cookbooks. The pages crackle and the spiral pinches when they turn.
1: There's a recipe in here where he says that you want to get the grease hot enough that it'll jump back at you. There are much more formal ways to describe what he's describing, right? But that's how my grandmother would have said it.
0: After 30 minutes, the pineapple casserole is done.
1: There, see? Bubbles. That's the sound of a happy pineapple casserole.
0: For Ashley, this very cookbook was a doorway back home through the kitchen. Can we try it? Yeah. God, mm. oh, that's good.
1: It's like savory and sweet. Right? And then you get like the buttery and the crunch. Mm. When I think about home, and home in the sense not of where I'm living now, but where, I'm, where I come from. You know, home is food. And by food, I mean the rituals around how it's grown, how you harvest it, how you put it up, how you cook it and prepare it, how you consume it together as a family around a table during a holiday or how you eat a tomato sandwich over the sink. Um, so the juices just run down your arms.
0: At the end of his life, Ernie Meichler returned home to Florida, to Moccasin Creek, not far from where he was born. His companion Gary Jolly was with him there when he died of AIDS at the age of 48, just two years after White Trash Cooking was published, and just a few days after his second cookbook was released, Sinkin' Spells, Hot Flashes, Fits and Cravens. Ashley Day has that one, too. Thank you to Florence Turcott of the University of Florida Smathers Libraries. The Meikler papers were a gift to the archive by Ernie's family and friends. Music for this episode is by Price Walden, who composed six songs by commission for the Southern Foodways Alliance, all inspired by Ernie Meikler's White Trash Cooking, and made possible by a generous gift from the Cocaine Fund. Thanks to musicians Slade Lewis, Ricky Burkhead, and Damian Walsh. Music also by Lobo Loco and Dr. Turtle. Thanks to Gravy's managing editor, Sarah Camp Milam, and also to the SFA's oral historian, Sarah Wood. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first, visit southernfoodways.org to meet Hickory Grove, Arkansas's own Shea Hembry, SFA's 2016 Symposium Artist-in-Residence, and enjoy a preview of his show, The Secret Ingredient, which will hang at the powerhouse in Oxford, Mississippi, and be open for public viewing October 4th through the 31st. SFA's visual arts programming is made possible by an investment from Louisville, Kentucky based 21C Museum Hotels. At SouthernFoodways.org, you can become an SFA member, and your membership dollars will support SFA work, including our oral history projects and this podcast. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, a North Carolina farm tended by refugees.
1: He's talking about how looking at this this rice plant reminds him of uh, Burma and how this is a small plot of rice but where he came from there's a big plot of rice and it's all green and when the wind comes they all flow in one motion. He said it reminded him of his homeland.
0: This story reported entirely by refugee teenagers. That's next time. You're listening to Gravy. I'm Sarah Reynolds for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And you'll be hearing from me now and then throughout this season and the next. Remember, as you go about your day, make cornbread, not war. Oh, and if you like that phrase enough to wear it, visit our friends at billyreed.com for the latest in cornbread haute couture.